0: All right. It is time. I don't know if you guys heard, but I guess there was a 22nd anniversary yesterday or something, I was told. Friday. It was Friday. Okay. Wow. That just proves that Lynette has wherewithal and patience. Yeah, he's back there listening. I'm just checking. So congratulations to y'all. 22 years of putting up with Mike. If we believed in earning sainthood... You'd be there, just so you know. If that was possible, that'd be your thing. Check it off. So, no, we're not hugging it out. You can just stay back there. Uh, well, I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I don't have that gift. Okay. So, anyway, well, let's dive right in because I got some stuff I want to get through. As we've shifted our focus here in this series of in His image, understanding that being created in the image of God. Um. You know what, what? What we're establishing is a, a basis point of that we have a lot of things that we say as the body of Christ, and, and maybe even believe, but we don't necessarily know why we say it or why we believe it. And making sure we get this stuff correct because it has an impact in everything that we do and everything we believe. There is a reason that we do certain things. There's a reason that we say certain things, and it's not a matter of convenience. It is much more convenient to kind of go the world's way because it's just easier to get along. But God has set a standard. And as I told you guys as we have got into this last part, understanding the biggest parts of Christianity is not complex, but it has to start with the foundation. The number one is who God is. If we can't answer that from a biblical position, then we really don't have an answer. If it was not for Scripture, any idea that we had about God would be nothing more than an opinion. God has revealed who He is, His characters, how He moves. All of that stuff through the pages of Scripture. Go out on the street sometime. Talk to people. Tell me, who is God? You're going to get all sorts of different answers. Ask Him, are you going to heaven when you die? You're going to get all sorts of different answers. How do you know that? You're going to get all sorts of different answers. If it were not for Scripture, we would not have anything objective to hold against. It would be just an opinion. So that's number one. We've got to answer that. Number two, who am I in relationship to Him? Because if He's here and I'm here, I need to know who I am what my expectations are, how I relate to Him. I mean, you notice we don't make sacrifices to God anymore. But there was a time that we did. Why don't we? We need to know that. We need to know the fellowship, the relationship, the standing that we have with God. If you're unsure of who you are in relationship with Him, you'll spend your entire life chasing things, trying to please Him in a way that perhaps isn't. I mean, you talk to people who have left the Mormon church, as an example. Now, as you guys well know, they're not Christian. They have a, a bunch of odd beliefs and whatnot. But here's the deal. They have a works-based righteousness. You've got to do these things. You've got to do all of these different things. And no matter what you do, you never have security. Have I done enough to make the celestial kingdom? Even if I get baptized for the dead, even if I get married in the temple, even if I do all these things, I have no guarantee. And there are more antidepressants taken among that community than anywhere else in the world. Why? Because they're always trying to do something. So you've got to know who you are. It matters. But the third part of this is who is my enemy? It's not the person sitting across from you. Not your political rival. It's not your neighbor who doesn't cut their grass right. None of that kind of stuff. Who are my enemy? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against every principality and power, ruler of the darkness of this age. You see, we are in a spiritual war. We have to know who the enemy is. We have to know how he works. The reason we have to know that is because we have to be able to recognize when he is coming in and the moves that he's making and the attempts that he is making to pull you away. As I told you guys, is that when we talk about sin and temptation, all of these, we equate it as a moral thing That Satan is just trying to get you to sin so that you're wrong or whatever. It's to pull you away from God. If he can get you to sin, if he can tempt you, he can pull you away from God. And we're like, okay, fine. I would never have an affair on my spouse. I would never murder somebody. No matter what the temptation is, I would never do that. And that's probably true. But what I want you to get is that that is an extreme, but there's a whole lot in between. If he can get you to compromise little by little it will make you ineffective as we see in in uh luke chapter 8 mark chapter 4 matthew chapter 13 about the soils we'll get into that in a little bit it's all about producing fruit in isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 it says your iniquities have separated you from god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear we have been separated from god by sin we have been brought into right standing with god by jesus's blood and so now We have a job to do. Now we have work to do. You see, when the enemy tempted Adam and Eve, it was to draw them out of fellowship. Look at that in there. When Jesus was tempted, it was to draw him out of fellowship. When the enemy tempts you, it's to draw you out of fellowship. And that part that you're starting to understand now, but the how is the question. What is he doing? How does he go about doing it? How does he get people to believe wrong things? How does he get people to do wrong things? Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by the fruits. The men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So what does he do? He sends false prophets. He sends false teachers. Again, we're talking extremes. But he also sends false ideas. And we live in a world that is trying to draw you away from God and closer to Him millimeters at a time. Think about it this way, guys. And you can relate to this one. Okay? When gas jumps over $4 a gallon, which diesel is right now, if you haven't noticed, we're all feeling the pain. This is ridiculous. How can they do this? How can they charge that? And what happens? They lower it to three dollars You're like, oh, thank God. When in reality, it ought to be a buck and a half. I told somebody when my wife and I were going to school down in Oklahoma, gas got down to like $0.88 cents a gallon. I drove to the mailbox, y'all. I drove everywhere. Eighty-eight cents a gallon, free. Let's go. Been a while. Some of you remember much lower gas prices. Twenty-five cents. Do I have 15? fifteen? Eleven. Can anybody beat eleven? Thirteen cents. Yeah. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> Nine cents. Is that what you said? Nineteen cents. Okay. You won congratulations. You win the prize. See, Mike will give you a hug on the way out. I mean, the thing is, guys, is like, look at what happens. They got us conditioned to these high prices. that when something backs off just a little, they're like, oh, good. That doesn't mean it's normal. So when we look at this and we look at what's happening, let's go to Luke chapter 8. Let's look at these soils let's begin to break this down because as you see none of this is to draw you out of fellowship with God relationship with God to where you're not born again Luke chapter 8 verse 11 as he explains the parable now the parable is this the seed is the Word of God those are the wayside are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved but the ones on the rock are those who when they hear receive the word with joy And these have no root, who believe for a while, but in a time of temptation they fall away. And the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word, with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So four soils. Number one, not born again. The enemy comes, takes the seed from the heart, lest they believe and be saved. The next two is where the majority of people will fall in. They fall away for temptation, for cares, for riches, the pleasures of this life. Did that happen overnight? Usually not. It's a millimeter at a time. It's the frog in the pot concept. This is the strategy from the very beginning. Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent's talking to Eve. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? You should not eat of every tree of the garden. Now let's stop this. That right there, that phrase right there is getting her to immediately question what God had said. Did he really say that? This is, in a nutshell, the beginning of every temptation, of everything. Did God really say you can't do that? Oh, God wouldn't mind. He'll understand. Now think about what we've been reading in Revelation chapter 2 about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Oh, God will understand you need to be able to live. You can go to the theater. It's no big deal, right? We need to be a part of the community. We need to be visible. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They were compromising God's standards to the world's standard and melding the two. And what did Jesus say? I hate that. Not just, I am displeased with your behavior. He says, I hate it. How many times did Jesus use the word hate? Not very often. He doesn't like this melding of the two worlds. He called Israel to be separated. He called Adam to be separated. He called you and I to be separated. He doesn't like that. Has God indeed said, you'll see the beginning of all compromise start with that. We'll look at the Bible and say, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. And then we will come up with some doctrine or some belief or something that fits the narrative that we happen to like. It's called ear tickling. We'll find the preacher who will tell us what we want to hear. Not what we need to hear. It's kind of like if you go to the doctor and he says, listen, a lot of your problems will be solved if you just lose a little weight. Okay? What should you probably do? Lose a little weight. Maybe. But the equivalent is like, I don't like what he says. I'm going to go to the doctor who says it's okay to be fat. Now that doctor probably owns a boat somewhere, thanks to all the fat people that stayed fat. Just a thought. Has God indeed said? Think about how we do that. That is what happens, number one. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So he just said, "That's not what God said," or "That is what God said, but that's not what will happen. You're not going to die. You'll be okay." So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit, and ate, she gave her husband with her ears. good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. Does that not sound similar to cares, riches, pleasures of life? Does it sound similar? Of course, nothing changed one strategy, deception. let's go to Matthew chapter four. this is the temptation of Jesus. I know we've read this before, but I want you to catch how these interlock. Matthew chapter 4 verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted for 40 days and nights, he afterwards he was hungry. and when the tempter came to him he said, "If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread." And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." So he's coming at him with an immediate need a desire a temptation i mean in 40 days that's a long time would you be hungry me too some of y'all are hungry now some of y'all eat 40 minutes ago okay so you get that but his response was the word of god he goes back to a passage out of exodus immediate needs and desires was what he was being tempted with then verse 5 the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you are the son of God throw yourself down for it is written he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone Jesus said to him it is written you shall not tempt the Lord your God what's he saying? prove yourself if you are the son of God do you realize that Jesus wasn't the first one to claim to be the son of God? do you also realize he wasn't the last one to claim to be the son of God? is it possible that the enemy didn't know for sure? Possible. we don't know but if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And what does he do? He uses two passages out of Psalm to justify it. Okay? So does the enemy know the scriptures? Yep. Does that mean every time a verse pops in your head and you start feeling condemned about something, is it maybe not the Holy Spirit? It's possible. Can scripture be twisted by the enemy? Absolutely. We see it. And what's he tell him? Prove yourself. Verse 8, again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you, you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan! for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. He's giving him the notoriety and the power. You will be like God. I mean, think about that. This is nothing new. So when you look at these four soils, you've got to understand what's going on. The first group is not born again. But, in verse 13 of Luke chapter 8, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and they have no root, who believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. Did they believe for a while? Yes. So what happened? Temptation came, and now they have been moved out of fellowship with God. How long did it take? We don't know. But it's usually a millimeter at a time. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. What choked out the seed? The cares, the riches, and pleasures of life. Chasing your best life now, maybe? The American dream, maybe? Were we put on this earth to amass riches? No. See, money is at the root of a lot of problems. We'll talk about that later on. But there are two areas that I I see from a pastoral standpoint oftentimes that people will just, man, they will rise up. One is money, the other is alcohol. They'll talk about, well, money, that's between me and God. Okay, that's fine. So is everything else for that matter. And it's like, well, it says don't be drunk, so as long as I don't get drunk, I'm okay. Okay, are you sure? See, we don't study it out. We find something that fits in there today. When I ask them, like, have you actually looked into that? Have you studied out what, this, what is going on there and all of that? The answer is every single... I've never had one person ever say, yep, I've actually done it. I looked into the original language. I looked at the context of the culture. I looked into all of that, and I came to this conclusion. That's never happened once. Okay. Why is that? I don't know. Because maybe we don't want the answer. Or maybe that's what it is the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear free with patience. So if you look at this in Mark chapter uh, 4, Luke chapter 8, and then also Matthew chapter 13, this is a group of seven parables. The first one being the parable of the sower. And it says time and again, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. It says seven times in the gospel. It also says in the book of Revelation. It's the structural phrase between Revelation and 2 and 3, which is seven letters to seven churches. And then you have these seven parables. They are kingdom parables. And what it is doing is it is tying Matthew chapter 13 to Revelation 2 and 3. And we've been reading out of Revelation 2. Looking at what is going on with the church of Ephesus, with the church of Pergamos. The seed is the word of God. That is consistent throughout the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13. There's something called the principle of expositional constancy. Catch that? I don't know who makes up these terms. But here's what it means. Essentially... If the Holy Spirit uses an idiom, that idiom is used the same throughout the entirety of Scripture. It doesn't suddenly mean something completely different in one spot. That's what the enemy uses. So, the principle of expositional constancy. Write that down. It might be on Final Jeopardy. You never know. But these soils here are talking about the conditions of the heart. There was a soil that was on top of limestone, and therefore the seed could not get down very hard. Pharaoh had a hard heart. We see time and again. Where are we? Hard heart, soft heart, whatever. The enemy will use all of these things to draw you away from God. It's a millimeter at a time. What we don't realize is how frequent this is happening because it's not just a matter of believing the right things about god it's the little things that will draw you away time and time again so going here in the next few weeks we're going to begin to get things that are going around in our culture that have always been here that can clearly be seen by the enemy if you want to find the answers music movies television there are things in writing there are things around us that draw our attention Away from God. I'm going to show you guys some things that are confessed by musicians and actors and things like that. They talk about selling their soul to the devil. That they're involved in occultic practices. All this other stuff. Things that we are told to avoid. Just so you can see it for yourself. Now you can take what you, you know, do with it what you want, but you're going to see it because we have to know. We have to know the strategy of the enemy. We have to know what's going on. So where does all of this come from? If you look in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, you begin to see what caused the enemy to fall, Lucifer to fall. And there's a a phrase that's used in Ezekiel 28. So turn over there. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14. I want you to see this. I've talked about this before. But you've got to understand what's going on. In Genesis chapter 3, as you know if you've been around for a while, I believe that that is exactly where Satan fell. He did not fall at some prescribed time and history past or any of this other stuff i think we see it right then and there for a number of reasons i don't have time to go into today but verse 14 ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14 you were the anointed cherub that's an angel who covers. i established you you were on the holy mountain of god you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you by the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing on the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Now, I'll stop for a moment. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. What's the abundance of trading mean? It's a phrase that we don't use. But essentially what it is, is that you are a steward of something that belongs to somebody else. And instead of passing that along as a steward would, You are keeping a portion of it for yourself. Now, in other parts, it talks about all these instruments, that you were created with these instruments, and that is why it was believed that he was some, like a worship leader or something. We don't know for sure, but it's implied. Whatever his position was, we see Lucifer, Michael, these archangels, these are very powerful beings that God had created. He was in a position to steward what rightfully belonged to God. But the abundance of the trading he was taking some of that for himself the analogy i've often used is that if you bring a car to me and say chris will you sell this i want a thousand dollars for it i said great i can do that what's your bottom dollar You're like uh 700 perfect and i negotiate it and i get a buyer at a thousand dollars and i come and i bring it i was only able to get 700 what have i just don't done i've stolen from you that's rightfully you i was the steward of that resource that you entrusted me with and I have lied and stolen with you. That is what's going on here. I want you guys to understand that. So by the abundance of your trading, what happens? You become filled with violence within. It is heart. And you sin. And I cast you out. We go to verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Understand what's going on when he was created he was created very beautifully this is my opinion and then all of a sudden God creates Adam and Eve he creates mankind gives them all the authority of the earth they came from dirt what was he created from I don't know it doesn't say but he, they come from dirt and all of a sudden all this authority and all this attention and he brings everything to Adam to name not him And he's like, I have to serve that. So what does he do? He brings a temptation against them. There's a number of reasons I think that that's where he falls, but that's irrelevant for right now. So understand what he's doing. What was he doing? He's trying to draw them away from God. His heart was lifted up because of his beauty. So understanding this and understanding what's taking place, every way the enemy works is to draw you away and to bring worship to himself in one way or another by not worshipping God in a sense you are worshipping the enemy now let's go to First Peter chapter 1 First Peter chapter 1 verse 16 now understand the gospels are the eyewitness testimonies of the writers that's what they are, they're writing down what they saw and what they heard, that is the position they always come from, you look and go through a couple many times they talk about being eyewitnesses it's crucial to understand that these are not just stories that were made up they were there for a reason and they were writing these things for a reason first Peter chapter 1 verse 16 for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty why is he saying that making sure you understand I'm telling you what happened we were there we saw it with our own eyes for he received from God the Father honor. And glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice who came from heaven, and when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture uh, is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit chapter 2 verse 1 but there were also false prophets among the people now false prophets remember what we just determined in in, in Matthew chapter 7 these are not people who prophesied falsely inwardly they are ravenous wolves that means they know what they're doing false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresy even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So this is a heavy accusation. The false prophet and the false teacher will be among you and what will they do? They will draw many away. Cares. deceitfulness of uh, riches. All of these things. Whatever they are. Let's go on. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And I'll stop for a minute. That's a weird statement. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, what angels sinned? This is a reference back to Genesis 6, where they did not keep their first abode, but they took for them among themselves the daughters of men and married them. I know that's weird. I know it's a little sci-fi, but it's there. And There's a reason it's there. There's evidence outside of Scripture for this very thing taking place. So they sinned, received judgment. Noah in a world of ungodly people he was a preacher of righteousness was spared verse 6 and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot who was oppressed by filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, we've got the Genesis 6 account. We've got the flood of Noah. And we've got Sodom and Gomorrah and then Lot. What do those things all have in common? Sexual sin. Every single one of them. What is sexual sin? Any sexual activity outside of a husband and a wife. That's what God has said. That's what he established. What the enemy uses. What did we see with Balaam? They sent in the Moabite women. It tempted the Israelites. They committed sexual sin. And therefore judgment was brought upon them. You will see that throughout. Let's go on. Verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So we see Balaam brought into it. Balaam told Balak how to get the Israelites to fall. He couldn't bring a curse against them. But what does it say about these people? They're feasting with you. That means they're among you. They have to be. They come in un, 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 unknown. But inside, they're on a mission. Don't misunderstand. A false teacher is not somebody who taught something falsely. A false teacher who know, is someone who knowingly teaches something falsely. There's a difference. Because if, if you were marked as a false teacher for teaching something wrong, there's not a human being alive that would not be labeled as such not possible as we learn and we grow we begin to correct things but these people are amongst you they're feasting you. these are verse 17 wells without water clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever wells without water what good is a well without water? you see from a distance a well looks great if you if you're thirsty there's no substance. In it. There's no nourishment given. Verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ They are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning It would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness Than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them But it has happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having to wash And her wallowing in the mire now swelling words of emptiness allure them through the lust of the flesh. But what are the lusts of the flesh? Your mind immediately, you hear the word lust, you think of something sexual in nature. But that's not necessarily true. That's a part of it. But human nature has a desire for the supernatural. You can tell it by all the movies and stuff that's around us. I mean, if you think about it, Superman is supernatural. He's a man who has beyond natural capabilities. Jump tall buildings in a single bound, more powerful than a locomotive, faster than a speeding bullet. He wears his underwear on the outside of his pants, like, that man's got it going on, okay? But all of these things, all of these supernatural shows and movies and things, there's a, something inside of us that dwells for that. We have a nature inside of us to go after things unseen. And the enemy, of course, knows that. That is why music and movies are a big part of what he does. And you'll see that here in the weeks to come. But understand something. And I'm going to show you something here in a minute. What he's trying to get you to do is to worship anything but God. And if he can't keep you from getting saved, he can keep you from being productive. Now let me show you an example of this that ties in to Revelation 2 and 3 with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, with Balaam, and how all of these things will come full circle with human nature. I want you to see some of this. I get to ask this question about the book of Jude all the time. Let's go to Jude, verse 5. It's only one chapter. Jude, verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great days. So what's it referring to? Genesis chapter 6. Go back and read it. Study it. See what is going on there. The days prior to Noah, the angels left their first abode. They took for them the daughters of men. They created a race called the Nephilim. That means the giant ones. Okay? I know it's weird, but it's there. Let's go look it up. So they were reserved in everlasting chains verse 7 as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire what is strange flesh? we've already determined what sexual immorality is what is strange flesh? what was strange fire? fire that did not come down from God was brought into the temple was strange fire it was outside of his prescribed way what a strange flesh outside of his prescribed way do we get to uh, an opinion on that no it's his way now verse 8 watch this likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh they reject authority and they speak evil of dignitaries yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, having run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and perish in the rebellion of Korah. So now we mention Balaam. So you can see how these are interlocked. And I, that's what I want you to see. But! There's this one random verse that's really weird. It says, verse 9, Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. Did you all catch that? Michael, Lucifer, Moses' dead body. They're fighting over it. Do you notice how Jude here just kind of mentions it and skirts by and explains nothing? Do you know why that is? Besides to give me something to talk about today? It's because the readers knew what was going on. That's why there's not an explanation. But we don't. So you're telling me that the body of Moses was so valuable that Michael and Lucifer wrestled over it essentially. Well, what is happening here, and why? It's never explained. But let's go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, because we're going to find an answer. This is important. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Now, I have told you, and I, I, I say this all the time, when you're reading the Bible, don't try to get into your chapters. Read it slowly. Make sure you're catching what's being said in the moment. Because there's something in here that often gets overlooked. Verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Deuteronomy, as you know, is basically Moses' last hurrah, his last set of sermons, if you will. It says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. Now, we know Jericho, right? You saw VeggieTales, you know. Yep. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. and the Lord said to him this is the land of which I swore to give to Abraham Isaac and Jacob saying I will give it to your descendants I have caused you to see it with your eyes but you shall not cross over there now why not why this is the land that was promised they didn't get to go they leave Egypt they didn't get to go in the promised land because of their complaining. What did Moses do? He was told to speak to the rock for water to come out the second time. And he hit it again. And because of that, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. So he is getting ready to die. The Lord is showing him, letting him see, I'm about to do this. We're about to bring the people into the promised land as I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God always fulfills His promise. I'm letting you see it but you will not cross over. Verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Who buried him? Had you ever caught that before? Good for Yoli. Yoli catches everything. God buried him and nobody knew where. It's interesting. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished, and the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now the typical Jewish uh, mourning period is seven days. They did a little bit more than that. Why? Moses was the most revered man. Whoever lived when Jesus said that John, there had not been a prophet like John since Moses, that was a big statement. They looked adamantly at Moses. They were crying for 30 days. So, what we, in order to understand what we're talking about, we've got to look at this a little deeper. So I've got a map here so you guys can catch this. This is the land of Israel, the tribes. Where they were was. I can barely read it. Let me find it. Right in this area. Okay? This is the Jordan River. As you can see, two and a half tribes settle outside of the Jordan River. What happens when Joshua, they're standing at the Jordan, what do they do? They cross the Jordan River, they go into Jericho, that was the first battle. You guys all know this. Okay? So two and a half tribes will settle outside of here. Moses would have died right in this area. Now, how does this tie to Jude? God brings Moses up on the top of the mountain, Mount Nebo or Mount Misga, depending on where you read this. He's there, he dies, God buries him somewhere. The contending between Michael and the archangel, or Lucifer, over the body of Moses, is because of the natural inclination of the Israelites. Had they taken the body of Moses, had they known where it was, what do you think they would have done with it? They would have venerated it. They would have set up a temple and would have been, we're the church of Moses, more than likely. Because to my knowledge, this is the only person God ever buried. To my knowledge. Show me something else, but I've never seen that again. Because the people would have worshipped. Well, how do we know that that's what they would have done? Well, first and foremost, when Moses was up on the mountain, what did they do? made a bull, but not just any bull, it was apis, it was an Egyptian god, it was a, a, an agricultural thing, here we are in this wilderness and we need something so we're going to worship this god so that we can have crops and we can live and we can, we can do all of this stuff, we already know what they're likely going to do, we also see in the nature of the Mount of Transfiguration, you got Jesus, you got Moses, you got Elijah and what do they say, hey, let us build three tabernacles to you all and what would have happened? Like, well, we are the church of Elijah. We are the church of Moses. We naturally would have worshipped something other than God. Why do you think Satan was contending for the body of Moses? If he knew where it was, he could lead the people to it. And they would have never crossed over and taken all the promised land. Because two and a half of the tribes would be been like, no, we're good on this side. You don't need us. It would have separated. So now think about that little bit of nuance, little just kind of buried under the text there, we see exactly what the enemy's trying to do. He's trying to do things to get you to not follow the plan of God. Now you may say, like, I would never worship a dead body. Do people do that today? Do people do that in America today? Oh my, they do. So don't call it crazy. Now you call that's what I'm saying. This stuff is all around us. As I begin to show you guys these things, some of y'all might even get a little mad at me. Just, just deal with that, okay? Because sometimes we don't want to hear the truth. But the truth is set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it guides our lives and that everything. That you have promised. And yes and amen to him who believes. Lord, and I thank you. You say you will lead us not to deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we are standing on your word knowing that we have a mission. That we will be those who produce 30, 60, 100. So Father, I just thank you that in every part of our life you are glorified and I pray that we have an opportunity to share your love, your mercy, your compassion and your power everywhere we go. So Lord, I just pray right now that you would be lifted up and exalted in our everyday lives. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. See you soon.